Hello and welcome to Traeger Method, the podcast, episode one. Um, this podcast is a companion to the series I'm doing on Instagram right now. started about a little over a week ago, doing a kind of music-centric autobiography through photographs and ephemera uh, that I've collected or gathered on the internet um, that sort of tells the story of my life roughly between 1981, 1980, 81 to now. Um, my friend Paul is talking, I'm talking with my friend Paul Schlesinger. He's someone I've known for a number of years. He's not like a person from the punk days. He's uh, quite a bit younger than me in his early 30s. Um, so he's coming at it from the angle of somebody who wasn't there and is interested in it. So that's the conversation. You'll be hearing more from Paul in future episodes. I'll be talking to some other people too, some people who were there then with me and uh, others who weren't. This is just a, I'm sorry if the, the audio is not the greatest. I'm not worrying about that right now. I'm more in the mode of just like, let's just get this thing going. We'll work that out as we go. So this is the first episode. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Hello, Jason. Hey, Paul. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Have you been enjoying my uh, Instagram biography? I I have. I, I think a lot of people have. <laughs> yeah. to, uh, I think it's been, yeah, it's just been interesting because you came up in a time, like a very seminal time of punk. Yeah. I was fortunate in that way. It's true. I think you said to me something about like you can relate to them because there's universal stories, you know, of growing up that people go through initiations and and uh, you know eras of discovery and stuff. Everybody does that in different ways and different. But but uh, my specific time that I did that has proven to be a historical, historically particularly interesting one. Yeah, you kind of came. Yeah, you grew up and we're like lucky enough to kind of cross paths with like a lot of really important figures in early punk early american early american yeah punk, right yeah. yeah there's all Would you yeah what 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 so when you say hardcore um what does that different from punk or what no, do you mean by well that? i mean it's it's come to have there's come to be distinctions between the two stylistically kind of but like at that time it wasn't like that it was just saying you know this america it wasn't the sex pistols it wasn't the ramones or the you know blondie or whatever this was american underground teenage hardcore punk is a little faster a little shorter and a little more um suburban maybe and rural not not of you know not an urban arty scene more more of a teenage rebellion scene that's kind of what i would 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 how i would define like the difference between hardcore and punk in general but you know the two are it was just hardcore punk so what would you like let's maybe name some bands where you that kind of cross or split happened. Okay. Well, the difference, like I said, the difference between, you know, say the, the sex pistols and those New York bands and stuff and say minor threat and um, the necros and the band in Seattle was the farts. They, you know, put out like a 
45 with nine songs on it. I mean, a seven inch EP with nine songs. DRI would put out, you know, a uh, from Texas, they would put out a, a seven inch with like 21 songs on it. And that's not something that 77 punk bands did, you know. I mean, the band Wire was a band that was a British 77 punk band that was very influential on the creation of American hardcore because Wire, particularly uh, Minor Threat, and Minor Threat like did a cover of their song 12XU. And Wire had an album called Pink Flag that was a 77 punk, but, but the uh, songs, there were a lot of them were like 40 seconds long, which was not a thing that 77 punk bands did referring to 1977 like a first wave of british punk like the sex pistols clash and stuff so um so that was a hallmark of american hardcore that made it different than that music the other thing was american hardcore had no connection to major label music at all like corporate music at all you know the way that the sex pistols and, and the ramones and stuff the clash were all on you know their al- their first records came out on major labels but like American hardcore, like negative approach and, you know, black flag X, the germ. Well, no X was not hardcore. They were more of a punk and art type music, but those bands, they had, I mean, the original wave of American punk hardcore bands, zero interaction with major labels or anything corporate. It was just a hundred percent underground. Like, you know, all those early discord records, uh, seven inches, you know, it's all like hand folded covers, you know, it's folk art, like kids scraping together enough money to do a 500 copies of a seven inch EP, you know, that they recorded in somebody's basement. That was hardcore. So where do you come in? (laughs) I come in in that lineage, you know, I mean, I mean, but the thing is like, none of these distinctions are, it's not like you listen to one and not the other, you know, you, you come into punk in that era I'm talking about like, like I grew up listening to the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix, like records. Um, I bought my own Beatles records, but I got like records from my stepmom and different people that had like rock records that I listened to. And, you know, I was into that stuff and then whatever, some contemporary pop music. But then when punk came along, it was, you know, you had to, this is of course, you know, way before the internet, way before, uh, and uh, well, there also was no mass media exposure. So you had to hunt to find out like what punk even was or what it was now. And what's the difference between the Sex Pistols and like Black Flag, a band that's happening today. And uh, it was all like detective work. You had to do all sorts of research to get knowledge of it. And so, of course, when you're just beginning that um, that quest, you don't have any clue. Like I was, I was thinking today about, I was listening to a podcast with Ray Capo from the band youth of today he was on the hard times podcast and he was talking about he's my age a little older maybe and he started going to shows a little maybe a tiny bit before i did but not much and uh and who's ray capo the singer of a band called youth of today and shelter he's a well-known figure in hardcore like music and he was just on the joe rogan podcast for god's sake he's he's a oh, really? well-known person well known for also yoga and stuff like that it's a long story but he was talking about his first getting into punk and I related to it 100% because he was saying that like at first you're just looking for anything that's not mustache rock. Like, (laughs) you know, it's not ACDC. It's not Led Zeppelin. It's not black Sabbath. It's not cool in the gang or, you know, cameo. It's not, it's, it's, 
it's different. I mean, I, I just mean like it's not any of the genres of music that you hear on the radio, you know. But then, like when first MTV came out, you started seeing these bands like what Ray talked about. One of the first shows he saw was Haircut 100, which were like an MTV Brit pop kind of soul type band. But he was he was making the point that like nothing to do with punk, you know, very little to do, almost no relation whatsoever. Um, and he was saying like because back then you're just like, is this? punk it's different it's not, it's not it's not blue oyster cult you know yeah. and then he said like the next day he went and saw the uk subs who were like a total punk band you know and but that's the kind of exploring i did like too at the very beginning i was thinking today of doing a post on the uh i'll probably do it later today actually um talking about like my uh, my love of adam and the ants that i gave up when i got into black flag and how there was even this graphic that you would see sometimes in like LA fanzines that was like black flag kills ants dead, like referring to the insect spray black flag. Mm -hmm. And so you'd see the black flag logo occasionally written in the logo of that bug spray. Um, the one that's on the can, you know, and I did a version of that. I did a drawing of that logo and I also did a drawing of Adam and the ants, like an actual felt tip pen drawing, you know? And so I'm, I'm I posted the two, I'm going to post the two together. Um, to show that that bridge like in 1981 I was still like looking at Adam and the Ants going like I guess this is punk you know uh, maybe but then by like 1982 I was like no no Black Flag is punk Adam yeah. and the Ants is like new romantic it's a different thing it's 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 uh so you're making those distinctions you know at that age what's an what's an Adam and the Ants song because I know the band and I know I know some songs but um God, what what would be Prince Charming? Prince Charming. That's the the record. Um, that was like the second one. Kings of the Wild Frontier. They're a really cool band. I mean, a lot of those bands uh, that weren't punk didn't make the cut. Um, to me, were really good. Looking back, I mean, Adam the Ants is a very original band. Um, interesting sound. You know, now would be considered definitely a problematic um, uh, exploitation of Native American imagery, but. Uh, that was the thing that in the eighties was certainly not an issue. Um, and so did you feel culture. like you had to give up your like appreciation of that band or was there like a pressure? Uh, there, yeah, there might've been some feelings of that, or it was just a natural, you know, you just, you're just going deeper into this other thing. And, and the other thing is, is so exciting and gripping and compelling that it just falls by the wayside, you know? But I didn't give up my love of the Beatles or anything. I mean, I certainly didn't listen. I put away a lot of my other music, but, um, you know, only for a few years. And But that initial in immersion into punk was just so interesting and, and compelling that I just wasn't interested in anything else, really. Well, that's also an interesting thing that we've talked about before of, like, how music was so segregated almost. And, I mean, that was something I feel like existed even until, like, mid-2000s where it was, like, if you like indie, you don't like pop. Right. Um, yeah. And now it's just like, it's just all bled together. Yeah. It's just complete. Everything's so different. The internet age is just flattened and expanded and it's just, everything's different. But yeah, back then there was definitely like factions and, uh, you know, enemies between musical styles and um, not, there was you know crossover here and there of different kinds, but, but that early 81 to 82 when it was really war between like rockers and long hair people um, in most of punk scenes in the country, you know, you were just like, 
beset by these people, you know, older guys with, you know, feathered hair and mustaches and black Sabbath shirts would just chase you and beat the shit out of you, you know, like mercilessly. Um, and, and that we were so rare, like in Tacoma, you're just so rare walking down the street, looking punk was like, you never saw somebody like that. And when you did, you went over and talked to them like immediately. You were just like, who are you? Where are you from? How do I, you know, let's hang out. Let's exchange phone numbers. I mean, it was that kind of level, you know? And I can only think of doing that like once or twice that I saw somebody who wasn't, this is an 82, you know, Yeah. Um, that you saw that. And so, yeah, it was, it was very, um, what was your question? What was the, the point or question you made? Um, well, just talking about how segregated music was. Yes. Yeah, so it was very segregated and same thing amongst punk is that you, you know, once you got into hardcore, like, well, but the Northwest was an exception in this and it was, it was a very, dis- um, it's a big distinction between say Seattle and uh, Los Angeles, for instance, in 1981. Like if you went to a show in Los Angeles in 1981, wearing an ACDC t-shirt with long feathered hair, you were there for a fight. You were going to get the shit beat out of you, you know, like you would be sent toothless, you know, like the, like the H uh, Huntington beach, like punk guys would have just beaten you senseless, you know? That was not the case in Seattle. In Seattle, you could go to punk shows with feathered hair, flare leg jeans. You know, you might not be cool, but nobody's going to just like pound you, you know. Um, and there were like plenty of punk. It's just very much like Seattle had that grunge vibe way before it was there from the beginning, you know. Yeah. That vibe well, that- like You could have long hair. You could listen to Black Sabbath still. You could listen to ACDC um, and not be like kicked out of the scene. Well, that kind of also makes sense, like you, like proto grunge, which is like a mix of punk and like, yeah, mustache rock. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, and Seattle was the place because Seattle was such a hard rock town. Well, I mean, speaking of music, um, what do you call it? Integration, you know, and overlap. I mean, a huge factor is like the the racial divide in music, like that now does you know is so bridged, you know, in the in the way post hip hop era, it's just like a given that everybody listens to music made by everybody else. And it's just, you know, you know, like you're saying, everybody listens to everything, but back then, Oh my God, like at my, when I went to a junior high school for seventh grade in suburban North Seattle, very white, very suburban or, you know, 1980, maybe three black kids in the whole school, you know, few Mexican Latino kids, you know, but like a white school, Dude, you didn't hear any music that wasn't ACDC, you know, hard rock. KISW was the station, is the station, KISW, Seattle's best rock. Like that was the, there were kids that listened to pop and listened to, you know, other kinds of music, of course, but like that was just so the dominant music in every level. And no, you did not listen to like anything else. You didn't listen to Cool in the Gang and uh foreigner you know it was just no not like that i mean mtv didn't want to play black people on mtv when it started you know it took michael jackson's thriller before they would play even a black person's music that's mtv in the early 80s i mean that's where the level of i mean it was like way more like the 50s back then than it is like today way more well yeah i mean that's like so insane I mean, yeah, it's like almost incomprehensible. Yeah, well, it's completely incomprehensible now. But you got to think like back then too, this is like the beginning of the Reagan era. 
you know, we're going back to the fifties. We're, we're undoing the sixties. That's the whole vibe. And so you get like the biggest movie in youth culture back then was like John Hughes movies, like, uh, you know, 16 candles. Um, what do you call it? Pretty in pink. Those were movies that even I, as a punk kid was like immediately went out and saw, cause they, you just had to know those movies to be literate in youth culture, you know? And, uh, and I had a crush on Molly Ringwald, but, uh, you know, like anytime long duck dong shows up on the screen, you hear a big gong get hit and he goes, ah, you know, like <laughs> it's like Mickey Rooney out of uh, breakfast at Tiffany's or whatever, you know, it's just like, imagine a movie coming out today with like an Asian character. That's like this completely broad racist caricature. And that's the number one movie in America and doesn't even, nobody even bats an eye, you know, I mean, that was that world. And so, you know, and then I was talking about this in one of the, the uh, posts, you know, this idea that like the Trump era, of course, is so vile and dangerous and horrifying. But like, dude, when Reagan came in, it felt similar to us. You know, we and even as like just kids, we were like, oh, my God, this guy is just a total scam, you know, two bit movie star who's just pretends to be everybody's grandma, grandpa, you know, but he's meanwhile just kicking everybody out of the mental institutions and talking about welfare queens and overthrowing Nicaragua and you know what I mean? Like just, and no, everybody loved him outside of like the, you know, people of color and punks, you know, he was so widely beloved compared to like, say Trump, who's just like never got above 50% in polling in his entire uh, time. Like Reagan was, you know, he ended communism, you know, as a myth, but like, you know, he was like a God, and so to be like just fervently anti-Reagan as like a teen, you know, it was just, yeah, such a racist, crazy time. It was, like I said, way more like the 50s than like today. Well, so that's another part uh, of punk that I think of, especially in the earlier American stages of it was very tied with political Oh yeah, yeah, beliefs. totally, totally. It was because of Reagan. I mean, I say, I think more than anything, you know, when you think about the Sex Pistols and that wave of British punk, you know, there's always like the, you know, the jokes like, oh, we'll, we'll sing about Thatcher, you know, Margaret Thatcher, you know, and because like so many other songs, not, you know, didn't maybe didn't explicitly name her, but a lot of them did, um, you know, and that was concurrent to Reagan, you know, and when Reagan and Thatcher, that whole age, when you got more hardcore after, the, say, the 77 era where it became, you know, crass and stuff like that like British bands that were super dedicated anarchist, politically aware bands. And in America in the early years, it was more just teenage kids going, this is just so screwed. And the, the hypocrisy is just so apparent to us. And, you know, the lie of it was so apparent and still is today. But yeah, it was just a real, well, I'll say this. I've been really kind of amazed looking through old letters and things that I've kept um, and seeing how much activism there was more than I even thought. And earlier than I thought, because I think like in the eighties, like, you know, by the time I was in San Francisco in like 88, 87, like politics was all over the place. And it was, you know, from the whole Reagan eight years of Reagan and just living in the Bay area, which is a crazy political, you know, super political place anyways it was completely apart, but I was sort of surprised to find how like in 1982 kids would write me letters on the back of a, you know, Nicaragua demonstration flyer saying like, 
yeah, you know, me and my band played this benefit for the food bank and then we did this anti-Nicaragua thing. And these are like 15-year-olds in like Stockton, California doing like a anti-Nicaragua incursion protest. So yeah, they, they were it was crazy political even just in teenage uh and certainly, you know, virulently anti-cop and just incredibly uh over the top with like the hatred of Reagan. Who was there's like a recent I mean recent as far as just like since Trump's been president of like some, I don't remember who it was, but like a early punk figure, like saying Trump is punk. Do you remember? Does that ring a bell at all? You know, that's the thing. It's funny. Like I heard Jack from TSOL in some interview recently, he was saying uh, like the difference between punk in the eighties and punk now is nobody used to get mad at me for saying I hate the president, Yeah, you know, because it's like, there is this, there's, you know, there's that horrible, yeah, that kind of thing where it's like punk is, or Trump is punk because he's fucking shit up. And it's like, no, dude, no, no, no. So you come in. Yeah. So, all right. So you're, how old are you? Like what, like your first, when you go to your first punk show, I would have been 13 at my first show. Yeah. And what was it? Well, I think it was either the circle jerks at the show box or the farts at a little odd fellows hall in Tacoma. It was one of those. Right. And I really so, hit the ground running that first year. I, I like went to a show and then I, w- I saw like five or six, maybe more seven or eight shows in that year, which is pretty good for a kid who's 13. 13 14. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's a funny thing that I can relate to is uh, you went with who to your first show? To my very, well, if, 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 if my first show was the farts, then I went alone or with my brother and a friend. But uh, the Circles Jerk show in Seattle, my mom took me, my brother and my friend Eric Bittman um, to the show. Because at the time, um, the Showbox Theater was uh, down on First Avenue. It still is. Um, now it's a upscale, well, COVID, who knows what it is, but um, it's an upscale venue, you know, a nice, very well-run um, professional venue. But back then it was a rundown, like dance hall from the 20s or 30s, just completely bare bones, hollowed out, you know, all painted black, just um, down on First Avenue, which was a very sketchy part of town. There was this movie actually made called, um, uh, oh God, what was it? It was about homeless kids. The name is escaping me, but um, it's a famous movie, a portrait of like homeless kids living on the streets. And it was all filmed like on First Avenue in 1980, 81. Um, I'll, I'll think of it. Um, and it sort of portrayed the world that was down there. Just, you know, there was like a gang called the donut holers that hung out at this donut shop and they would extort the parking lot attendants for money. And it was just a scary place. And my mom was like, there's no way I'm dropping you. And also punk's a completely unknown, dangerous thing, you know? And she's like, there's just no goddamn way I'm going to drop you off on first Avenue or, you know, and send you to something like that, that I just, I have to see it for myself to feel safe letting you go. And we had a very wide leash. I mean, this is, you know, a seventies childhood where we did whatever we wanted, but she's a responsible mom, you know, and she was young and, you know, she's open-minded. So yeah, she put on like a motorhead shirt and went with us and well, took us. Oh, she put, she was wearing a motorhead shirt. Yeah. Yeah. She, 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 I remember very specifically just the black shirt with the motorhead logo, the, the mask and, uh, and she put on her like boots and, and 
She, I remember she oh, talked whoa. to some older people. They were there, like the security guard. There's always this one old security guard there. And she like talked to them and she was impressed. You know, my mom's very uh, like, I mean, obviously she's open-minded. She took me to the, see the circle jerks. So, but she, um, she's like, yeah, what did she think of that name? <laughs> I don't, I never even knew what it meant at that time. I don't know if she oh. either, you know, honestly, I just, I thought it had something to do with skateboarding. I thought it was like circle like <laughs> the pool. I really did. I remember thinking it had something to do with like, like you're, you're riding around a, a pool and you know, cause they have like skateboard imagery and it was called the circle jerks. And it was only like a year later that somebody's like told me what it was, but, um, but yeah, so she, you, you she, go she was, around she was curious and she, she was, uh, interested in it. She thought, you know, these kids look cool. They're, they're bohemians. You know, this is a, an outsider scene and they're doing something creative. And she saw that the slam dancing was like, you know, it wasn't just melees of violence. It was, you know, there was a rule, there was a rhyme and reason to it um, and an ethic to it. You know, it wasn't like you just stomp somebody. Everybody was about picking each other up. And I didn't like go in the slam pit at that age. You know, it took me a while to build up to it, but uh, um, at that show, but uh, yeah, so that's how I went. And she took me, ended up taking me to like a couple more, like we went and saw X, which she really liked, you know, she thought they were actually really great. And she took me to the fear code of honor show. So like the first three, she took us and, um, and then she was like, okay, I feel like, you know, you guys have good enough judgment and I understand what it is. And then I was off and running and seeing shows as much as I could. We'd take the bus from Tacoma. We'd get rides any way we could. My grandma lived in Seattle and my dad lived in uh, suburbs North of Seattle. So I had places to stay if, I needed it. But a lot of times I would, you know, we'd lie and we'd say, I'm staying with my friend, uh, you know, Eric's dad who lives up there or whatever, my, my friend's dad or some, we'd make up a, a, a lie and then we'd go just out and we would just find people and kids to stay with. And we'd go to a party after the show and you just sleep on the couch, you know, and they were all, you know, a lot of times it'd be like a, a slightly older, like college kids, like a lot of the, um, in Seattle, the university district was a big part of punk. It was a huge part of it because on University Avenue, there was probably like five or six record stores. And of course, those are just the hubs, like cool independent record stores. Um, so you could get, you know, fanzines, buttons, badges, records, all the stuff, promo stuff. I'd always, I always ask for uh, posters and stuff and they just give them to you. And then also there'd be other punks hanging out, walking around. And so you'd see people. It's the only place you could guarantee to see a punk rocker. You know, if you walk up and down the Ave all day and you'd go get flyers, you know, you'd look at the polls and it was basically like checking in with the internet, you know, who's coming next. That was the only place to find out, you know, I mean, maybe in the rocket or something, a local weekly, but for the most part, yeah, you were like hunting for flyers, hunting for other punks. And, and then the same ethic for like after a show, you know, if, if you're after the show, it's like 200 people, maybe tops at a big show. Just ask around, is there a party? Yeah, there's a party at this house in the U district. You know, we're all driving over. Then you'd hop in some like college guys, big beater car, you know, like you could fit like all my friends in one backseat of like an old uh, Cadillac, you know, from those fifties. And then you would just hurdle through the streets of Seattle to some, you know, house in the U district. And there'd be a party going on and maybe another band would play some local band or you just drink Mickey's Big Mouth and hang out and talk about, you know, meet other kids, fall asleep, wake up the next morning, go to the Ave, do it again. Parents never are any wiser that you weren't at your friend's house. You know, there you go. A weekend free in the city. 
Are bands ever coming to these parties? Yeah, I mean, certainly the local, the bands were all woven through the scene because there weren't very many people at all. And a lot of the people that were involved were doing stuff like being in bands or fanzines or something. But um, yeah, the, the there was you know a number of bands in Seattle that I love, the Silly Killers, the Rejectors, the Farts. Um, those were the big ones in my mind. Duff McKagan was a big figure of Guns N' Roses, the bass player of GNR. He was kind of the coolest guy in Seattle to me because um, he's he's only like five or six years older than me and yet that's the difference between like me being 13 and him being 20 you know what i mean mm-hmm. like so you know when i was 13 and you'd see duff walking down the street he was already a full-blown rock star to me you know he's like a 20 year old kid who plays drums in the fastbacks you know but he was just so cool because he's like six foot five he'd have like his you know bleach blonde hair leather jacket i remember he'd have sometimes like lipstick on you know and all dressed in black and you know he's just like when you're in junior high like a 20 year old duff mckagan a 19 year old duff mckagan is like just incredibly cool like i used to think i'd come back to like junior high school you know after a weekend in seattle and all these kids just like spend it with you know their parents going camping or something and i just like you know hung out with duff mckagan and and stayed the night at a party with like college kids and we saw doa and you come back to junior high, you're like, oh my God, you guys just are not living life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're so behind. And you know, the kids at that time were into like, you know, the white kids were into Ozzy and the black kids were into cool and the gang and stuff like that. And, you know, like I point out in one of those posts, like they couldn't hope to meet those people, you know? Whereas if black flag came to town, you could help them load in, you know, if you showed up early and you'd see them on the Ave. You know, I remember seeing Henry Rollins walking around University Avenue the day of the show. You walk up and say, hey, Henry, how's the tour going? You know, and it was just a different level. It's just a very, very accessible thing, which was another cool part about that, uh, being involved in that thing was that accessibility. Well, that's also interesting, the accessibility, because the trade-off now is music is so accessible, but that personal relationship and interaction seems to be less um with the exception of like say twitter and instagram you know being able to actually like you know write to lady gaga and she might go like right back or something you know yeah it's in that respect they're more accessible but but no but the actual like yeah i mean it's it's all about scale you know because I mean, it's one of those things where I happen to be involved just by fate at this time when it was this micro thing, you know, even in yeah. the time I was into it, it expanded so much like the difference then it grew exponentially year to year. And, and, uh, you know, so even the difference between like, say 81, which was when I first became aware of like American hardcore and that, that it was a scene happening. And then like, 83 which is when i moved to san diego huge difference between then and then you go like 84 to 86 and it's like here's a good example of like the growth and the change and the kind of expansion is like in 1983 i got a letter from pat dubar from the band uniform choice in tacoma he was a pen pal and like he's talking about the bands he likes this is in 83. He's like saying, I like the misfits. I like suicidal tendencies. I like, you know, the SSD control minor threat, you know, those are 
four totally different type of punk bands. Well, not, you know, like Minor Threat and SSD are like East Coast straight edge bands. The Misfits are like, you know, the horror rock band, the Misfits. And then, you know, Suicidal Tendencies is, you know, that kind of punk. And yet at, in 83, you'd like all that stuff. You would, there wouldn't be, and you'd go to a show and the bill would be totally different types of bands. There'd be like a, you know, social distortion with uh, the Minutemen and channel three. And, you know, there'd be all different styles of punk because it wasn't big enough that you could go off in micro uh, climates, you know, but by 84, 85, you go to a show at Fenders where every band was a straight edge band with, uh, you know, sweatpants on and high top shoes and crew cuts and puka shell necklaces. And, and there would be kids that would be into straight edge that wouldn't um, listen to any like Mohawk bands, you know? So even in that shorter period of time, what I'm getting at is like it had enough that it could fraction fact, fractor, fracture into like subgenres. Like you could be into peace punk and you would like listen to Crass and, and Crucifix and bands that, and Discharge and bands that sung about nuclear war. And then you could be into Straight Edge where it's just sung about, you know, positive mental attitude and working out and being with your friends and all clean cut. Then you could listen to like, you know, the fuck ups and it would just be like, you know, hey, heroin mission districts grunge and like people in each of those worlds might not even listen to the other thing at all because they're so different and that's in the course of yeah four four years you know it was just going crazy and then you extrapolate out to like now for instance where you just think like you know the misfits when my friend i never saw the misfits because they never came to seattle um but like my friend Martin saw them for one of his first shows and he's like, dude, there's like 120 people at the Misfits show in Los Angeles, you know? And then the last time they played there, it was like at the Staples Center, you know? So it's just this thing that it was a tiny little thing that became this massive cultural uh, um, touchstone and just something that's so widely known. But I mean, I wish I had bought stock in punk, you know? <laughs> it's like getting yeah. it on Microsoft when it's in a garage because that's exactly what it was like. Well, yeah, like, would that be, I mean, do those records now, like, sell for? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, American Hardcore is probably at least, I mean, I don't know about the world of record collecting, but yeah, I do know for a fact that those things are absolutely precious. I mean, first pressing Discord records, like I was saying in that post I did about my farts single, the the one I did, one of the posts was about that. Um, I'm, I talk about how, like, that record the original pressing because it was repressed on like alternative tentacles in San Francisco. They repressed it a couple of times, um, much bigger pressings, but like the original pressing, the amount they made was 500 copies, you know, and they're each, each of the covers is hand folded Xerox white paper, you know, it, and I was looking at it now. It just looks like folk art. You know, you're like, this is a completely youth made little object that there's only 500 of them total. And now there might be 200. Who knows? You know, they get wrecked, they get destroyed. So it's a very rare and to me, a very beautiful um, thing. And so, yeah, just because they're so rare, they're sought after. And the fact that, you know, then you think of something that's even more influential, like Minor Threat, like the first, I don't even know what like a first pressing of, you know, in my eyes goes for now, <laughs> like a seven inch like that. It's got to be a fortune, you know, because like, you know, like I was saying, millions of people know about minor threat now um a thousand people knew about them back then are you listening to any of this music as your uh yeah i have i've done some you know just to reacquaint myself and uh you know because i don't listen to music a ton these days punk music or otherwise but uh i um 
yeah, it's been cool. I mean, a lot of that music I just love. I listen to it now and I'm like, I remember my dad once in like 84 or something asking me, like I was listening to MDC's album, Millions of Dead Cops. And he was listening to it and going, do they mean what they're saying? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he's like, do you think you'll like this music when you're older? Which I think is like, also like, who cares if you like it or not? But I was like, yeah, I, th I think I will. Some of it, not all of it, but yeah, some of it. And, you know, that's exactly what it's like. It's like the great punk music is just great music and the bad punk music, you don't, you know, necessarily seek it out. But even that, it's like, I love like generic hardcore and stuff like that. It's, like I said, it's definitely looks to me way more like folk music than it does like, um, I just mean in, in the terms that it's like folk music is music of the people that just arises out of the culture spontaneously, you know? And like American hardcore punk is just like that because it's it's just made up by kids who don't know what they're doing. And it's not, yeah, it's a very specific, and some of it is downright arty now. When you look at the minimal qualities of it and the kind of stripped down nature of it. Yeah. And then, of course, that's not even to, t to speak of the graphics and all that stuff that goes along with it, which is also all folk art, you know, all the flyers that were hand drawn and and all that stuff. Um, yeah. What's the sense of time and emotions that are coming up? Because I think when I've experienced even, yeah, just like listening to music that I listened to growing up, I get some of those feelings still. And like, what is your reflection on that? Like, let's just say the age 13 to 14 and Maybe I'm really enjoying it. You know, it's, in life, it's not always the right time to dive into uh, the archives. You know, you wouldn't want to at all times and you don't, you know, I, I think I look through my stuff every 10 years or so, you know, but this time um, I was looking through it and I have a really great um, perspective. I'm just really interested and I'm seeing that uh, it's valuable to do both for me personally and um you know, for the culture, like it's, it's worthwhile thing to share, you know, because I think, especially because of this time we live in and like the, and, and I'm seeing things that I didn't really put together about like parallel, the differences and the parallels between now and back then, you know, what is different, what's the same. And the diff, I mean, the main thing I can point to is, uh, the internet, you know, that's the main thing that's different now about the world and the culture, uh, it just throws everything into a different reality on some level. But uh, the things that are the same, oh my God, so much. Like I was looking through this one old journal uh, from like 86 or something. And there were, sometimes I would glue things into it. And uh, there were two little hand, like hand flyers kind of things glued in the opposite pages. And one was for a democratic socialist of America benefit for Billy Bragg. And it's like, raise the minimum wage. Let's all have decent jobs. You know, there's no reason people need to go hungry. We should have healthcare. And then the page opposite, it was an act up flyer saying, you know, 9,000 people dead from AIDS. The president's doing nothing. Doesn't care about the pandemic. Doesn't care about, you know, the people, you know, we need to take to the streets. And I'm going, there you go. You know what I mean? Like that's 1986. Fast forward to 2020. It's like democratic socialism in America. Let's have a $15 minimum wage. You know, the president's a fascist and that doesn't care about the pandemic. It's like the exact same goddamn thing. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm discovering, like in terms of the culture, that's really cool to see. 
And I'm also seeing how like our shows were plagued by Nazi skinheads in the Reagan era. You know, that was a major thing that came a few years later, but, um, and how did we fight back and how did who won and, and why, and what was the strengths of our side and what was the strength of their side, etc. So those are all really valuable things, just generally speaking to the culture, I think, to kind of explore. And then there's the personal angle for myself, like seeing like, like what beliefs do I have about myself that aren't actually true that I kind of held on to, but you know, cause when you go through all these, these things and kind of build a timeline and put them in order and kind of see how one thing led to another and, and what the, the uh, spans of time actually were and that kind of stuff. It's really cool to see. And it, it sort of takes away some of the stories you've told yourself and it makes them more realistic. Um, so there's that. Then there's also just the general kind of, uh, yeah, you know, thankfulness, like, oh, I'm still alive. Wow. I went through a lot. And there's a lot of crazy times where I could have gotten killed or, you know, uh, just driving as much as we did in Southern California as teenagers. It's amazing that we never got creamed, you know, um, going to all these crazy places where there's so much violence and uh, there's Nazis, there's all kinds of people, you know, drugs, whatever, you know, there's so many chances you can get injured or screwed up in life. And it's kind of amazing that that didn't happen. And so there's thankful stuff. Also all the friends that I made then when I was like a teenager who are still my best friends now, you know, some of them, uh, that's incredible, you know? So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the process and I'm learning and it's making me appreciate our time and see it in context better. And also, yeah, just appreciate the life I've lived and how lucky it is to have been a part of a subculture that whose values I still feel today, you know, and relate to. And it's cool. And also it gives me a sense of accomplishment. Like, you know, sometimes I've told stories about myself that like, Oh, you didn't do enough. You know, you should have gone for it more. You should have, you know, lived your dreams more, whatever, looking back at life. But then I look at these, um, in my record, I go, dude, I was getting out there. Like, you know, you can't do everything. <laughs> it's like, you can't, you know, and, and I was making a ton of stuff and, and participating deeply in the subculture. And I was learning a lot and meeting incredible people and having really good experiences. Um, and that's, that's nice to see and to see, like, give yourself that. Uh, yeah. Give yourself so, that. So that's like one of the bigger beliefs that's been changed. Yeah. I mean, it's a belief I'm always working on all the time is like just, just appreciating being grateful and things like that. So yeah, any kind of looking back for all the friends I had for having a cool family, having a cool, uh, you know, living in a cool place. I mean, it's also not, that's a part of the story too, is just regionalism. You know, you're like back then living in Seattle meant a ton, you know, you lived in a very different place than if you lived in, you know, Mississippi, uh, in terms of what you were what was accessible to you or whatever, you know, everywhere you lived back then just determined so much about what bands you saw, you know, who came through town. Like, it's not like today where if you have an internet connection, you're looking at the same internet everywhere you go. Well, was Seattle like a tour stop for a lot of these bands? Cause I know Portland was kind of over skipped over a lot. Yes. Yeah, Northwest in general. Yes. They were skipped over a lot and not even seen as like significant places to go. We hardly ever got bands from the East coast or Midwest. It was always, almost always bands from LA, San Francisco or Vancouver. Um, you know, it was just the LA bands were the ones that that first year it was like fear X, black flag, circle jerks, you know, you'd see DOA from Vancouver, 
Um, you know, I think Discharge did come. I didn't see that show. The Exploited came, you know, from England. But a lot of the bands, yeah, they just skipped it. Or in the East Coast bands, you know, Bad Brains and Scream came out. Minor Threat actually broke up just before they were going to play the Metropolis in Seattle. And that made me incredibly sad. I think they broke up in Denver, Colorado on tour and Seattle (laughs) Seattle was canceled. Yeah. And I remember reading an interview with Ian at some point and he was like, yeah, that was one of my greatest regrets that we never went to the Northwest. So, you know, bands like the Misfits never came to the Northwest. They just went to California, played LA, played San Diego, San Francisco, and then went home. Um, yeah, so that that was a huge determinant, and then you know you just have the general style there. So, and then you you get into the local bands, you know, and they have more meaning too because you're seeing them so often. Yeah. Well, I think let's wrap up here for today. All right. Good talk about this week. We'll talk more next week. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to part with today? Um, let me think. No, I guess I'd just like to say that uh, if you're enjoying the Traeger Method archives on my main feed, I have another feed that's called Traeger Method Painting. And uh, concurrently or simultaneously as I go through my uh, punk archives and my music archives, I've been going through my art that I've made all my life. like, And I'm cataloging that. So I'm going to start integrating a kind of look back um, into the archives on my painting one as well. So, so people that look at my paintings today, the ones I'm working on now, they can see it in a lineage going back to the eighties, you know, and all the art I made in between in San Francisco and in Olympia over the years. Um, so that's going to be in there. So follow Jason Traeger or Traeger method painting as well. All right. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks Jason. Thanks Jason.